Welcome to another thrilling episode on Book TV. But before we dive in, let's talk about enhancing your reading experience with novel nutrition. As you lose yourself in today's story, imagine supporting your journey with our unique supplements, specially crafted for readers like you. Whether it's boosting focus with Epic, unwinding with Read, or energizing with Zip Strips, Novel Nutrition is here to complement each chapter of your literary adventure. Visit NovelNutrition.co or click the link in the show notes, and don't forget to use code BOOKTV for an exclusive 20% discount. Now, let's immerse ourselves in the magic of today's story. Chapter 41 Hartford, Connecticut 11.37 p.m., March 8th Councilman Jasper Tallis tried not to wake his wife as he snuck into bed. Lifting the handmade white and coral-patterned quilt his mother-in-law had made them for their wedding twenty years earlier. He hated the thing, and not just because it was pink, but because it reminded him of his lowly station and of his mother-in-law. It seemed like every night he crawled into bed, exhausted, having just spent the entire day fighting for change, but nine times out of ten losing the fight. Their modest two-bedroom home was once owned by the councilman Tallis had beat in his third try, and then only because the ninety-year-old bastard had croaked on the way to the ballot box. Some days Jasper Tallis swore he could hear the old man's ghost walking around the creaky second level, watching and waiting for him in the afterlife. At first it had been a badge of honor to buy the house for close to nothing, but now it felt like more of a lead weight around his neck, holding him down from ever moving up in life. He was only thirty-seven, for Christ's sake. He'd been in office for four years and hadn't made a dent let alone gotten an offer for any higher office. He huffed in frustration as he lay back, staring at the popcorn ceiling, yet another project they couldn't afford to do. Just as he closed his eyes, the phone on the bedside table rang. He rushed to stop the clanging of the antique phone, a hand-me-down from Delia's grandparents. Hello? Councilman Tallis, please said a serious voice on the other end of the line. This is he. Sir, I have the Secretary of State for you. Tallis went to object, confused, thinking that maybe it was the Secretary of the State of Connecticut, when a familiar voice came through. Councilman Tallis? Yes. I mean, yes, sir. Councilman, I'm calling to inform you that there will be a vehicle coming to get you in less than ten minutes. From your home— Wait, what? Tallis glanced at his wife, who surprisingly hadn't yet stirred. From your home you'll be taken to the airport and flown here. Where's here? Washington, D.C. Pack enough for a day or two. I look forward to meeting you in the morning. The call ended leaving Jasper Tallis staring at the phone, mouth open, mind whirling. What the hell was going on? Similar calls were placed to individuals across the country, the staff of the President's cabinet members doing the legwork, 
none knowing what it was all about, only that it had all come from the President. A mix of private charters and military aircraft left locales all bound for the same destination, Washington, D.C. Chapter 42 The White House 4.28 a.m., March 9th The White House staff was used to large events, but the last-minute notice sent them scrambling. Guests arrived in spurts starting at four in the morning, most looking confused and bleary-eyed. They were ushered in different waiting areas after being told not to talk to one another. Two Secret Service agents stood in each assembly area, ready to pounce on anyone who didn't follow the simple instructions. President Zimmer was impressed by the showing and the quick work of his cabinet. But possibly the biggest surprise of all came from the person who devised the process by which attendees would arrive, be categorized, and presented. After a quick briefing late the night before, it had been Vice President Milton Southgate who volunteered to organize the effort. Zimmer marveled at the precise execution, every member with their marching orders, led by the conductor of the orchestra, Southgate himself. Sir, we have twenty of the forty-odd guests already here, reported the Vice President, referring to a printout he had just received from an aide. As discussed, myself, Mr. Hayden, General McMillan, and the cabinet members you selected will sort through the proposals. I've allotted no more than fifteen minutes per. As long as we don't have more than a couple of stragglers, that should put us to lunchtime. We'll break for lunch and then reconvene in the situation room with you included. I don't think we'll have more than a handful by then— so you can take as long as you'd like to question the guests. Zimmer was impressed again. The old senator knew what he was doing. He shouldn't be surprised. Southgate knew how to run the show. He was glad he hadn't asked for his resignation. Thank you for putting this together, Milt. Travis, what do you think? Travis nodded his head in agreement. I've got to say, Mr. Vice President, you sure as hell know what you're doing. Southgate nodded. No smile, all business. By early evening, we should have a measure of where we stand. Those with ideas still in the running will be sequestered until I give the word either for them to return home or stay and help with further planning. How's morale? And do you think they have any idea why they're here? asked Zimmer. Southgate shrugged as if it didn't matter. All they need to know is that you requested they be here. Apart from that, I've given instructions to keep information to a minimum. Good. Let me know how things progress. The morning went smoothly, thanks to the constant monitoring of Vice President Southgate. If an attendee or even a cabinet member got off-topic in even the slightest way, Southgate was there to turn the conversation back to where it needed to be. There had been the young gun from Silicon Valley, obviously full of himself and caffeine, who hadn't taken the hint. 
After politely asking the man to leave two times, Southgate calmly nodded to the security standing in the recesses of the situation room, and the upstart was swiftly escorted away. By nine o'clock they'd heard a wide variety of concepts. They fell broadly in three categories, military action, rhetoric, and economic. Those proposing some kind of military action ranged anywhere from nuclear strikes to assassinating the Russian president. The rhetoric group rode the spectrum anywhere between calling the Russians out on their own economic woes to concocting what really would be called a multi-leveled smear campaign against the Russian government. The economic experts suggested everything from retaliatory tariffs to varying taxation schemes. By the time they'd adjourned for lunch, Southgate, Travis, and the Cabinet had whittled the group of forty down to nine. So what do you think? the President asked his chief of staff as they each enjoyed a BLT with what must have been half-inch thick bacon and fried green tomatoes instead of your run-of-the-mill red variety. We definitely had some crazies in there. My favorite was the guy who wanted us to send seals in to capture the heads of the Russian government and hold them until they said uncle. Zimmer chuckled, shaking his head. I'll bet you would love to be on that mission. Sounds good for the movies, but in real life that's just suicide. I'm sure whoever invited that guy felt like an idiot after we grilled him. I mean, the guy didn't even have a way for the seals to get out with the hostages. Stupid. Well, I did say any and all ideas. Travis shrugged. I know, but come on, use your brain, people. Zimmer shook his head, smiling. It was good to have Travis in his corner. The former seal didn't bow down to him or his office. He gave it to the president from the hip, just like his cousin Cal. How's the vice president doing? I can't believe I'm saying this, but Southgate has got his stuff together. I wish you could have seen the cowering after he gave a couple people his death stare. He really puts people in their place. Politics and agenda aside, that's why he was so good at leading the Senate. My dad used to call him the Iron Fist. I see why. Travis placed his plate on the side table and stood up to stretch. I think we've got a couple good ideas. They may seem out in left field, but given the time constraints and the need for secrecy, I don't see how we could have done much better. I can't wait. The president popped the last bite of the BLT in his mouth, knowing that it would probably be the last enjoyable part of his day. Cal was about to snap. They'd been over the same information time and time again. No leads, no anything. Martindale had left the night before, but kept in touch throughout the morning. To make matters worse, Travis called just after midnight, waking Cal with the news of the new Russian threat. They'd batted ideas back and forth, both fearing the worst. 
The Russians had gotten cocky ever since they'd regained a toehold on the world stage. They weren't content with being in anything but first place. Cal had seen firsthand what Russian intelligence agencies were doing in the Middle East. Without much effort to conceal themselves, they casually interacted with countless individuals high on the U.S. target list, terrorists who were deemed too dangerous to do anything but put a bullet between their eyes or a tomahawk down their chimney. Cal rubbed his eyes as he gazed out over the New York City skyline. So many people in such a small area. He wondered what those people would do if they knew what the Russians were planning. If nothing changed, they'd know soon. Would the American people rally together like they had after 9-11? Cal didn't think so. It had taken a coordinated terrorist attack to wake the country, and that only lasted for a short time. Now the United States of America was anything but united. Factions on every side of the table thought they knew how the country should be run. Cal had his own thoughts, and was glad he'd never have to run for office. Keeping his mouth shut was not one of his strong suits. Cal, I've got Neil on the phone, said Daniel from across the luxurious room. Cal turned as the sniper tossed the cell phone to him underhanded. He snatched it out of the air and put it to his ear. What's up? First, I don't have anything new for you on Martindale's security guy. Cal groaned. It wasn't like Neil not to produce. Do you have any good news? Maybe. Have you ever heard of a guy named Jonas Layton? It doesn't ring a bell. I'm sure I've mentioned him. We were both at the TED conference in... Cal rolled his eyes. Neil, can you get to the point? Sorry. Yeah, so this guy Layton is kind of a legend in the tech world. They call him the fortune teller. Why? The dude is smart. Coming from Neil, that was a huge compliment, and Cal knew it. He's developed a system that enables him to predict future events in a way that's both simple and genius. What does he predict? Elections, stock market crashes, economic dips? Wait. Is this the guy who predicted, like, every electoral vote in the last presidential election? Same guy. What does this have to do with us? asked Cal. He reached out to me last night. Said he needed help with something. And? Cal loved Neil, the two having been friends for over ten years. But sometimes Neil's lack of situational awareness— Namely, that Cal was in a very impatient mood, pushed the Marine a bit too far. He's working on tracking stocks. Cal's breath caught. What did you say? He's pretty sure something's going on with the stock market. Cal's temper rose. And why the hell didn't you call me earlier? Take it easy, Cal, jeez. Sometimes I swear you're going to bust a blood vessel. Chill out. Neil and Cal both took audible deep breaths. His initial call was pretty vague. He said he needed help but didn't know who to turn to. 
Jonas figured I was a pretty safe bet considering the company I work for. Anyway, we went back and forth over the next few hours. He was pretty jumpy, kept calling from different phone numbers. Finally, fessed up to using pay-as-you-go phones he got from a drugstore. Why? He says someone might be trying to kill him, said Neil. Did he say who? Not yet. Like I said, he's pretty antsy right now. I've offered to help however I can. Please tell me this has something to do with what we've been racking our brains over for the last two days. It does. He's tracking the same stocks we are. There's a secret once hidden, a treasure the ancients used daily. It's turmeric, the golden spice of life. In the heart of ancient India, this revered root was more than a culinary delight. It was a symbol of purity, a source of wellness. Novel Nutrition brings this secret to you with our fire supplement. Each fire gummy is a nod to those ancient traditions, harnessing the natural, powerful anti-inflammatory and antioxidant benefits that have supported health and vitality for centuries. Nab your supply of Novel Nutrition's fire by clicking the link in the description and using code BOOKTV for a 20% discount. Read more. Live more. Be more. Chapter 43 The White House 4.44 p.m. March 9th Jasper Tallis was exhausted. He looked around the small waiting room furtively, sipping a cup of ice water as he took in the gold-framed pictures of long-dead American leaders. He caught his own scent, a day's worth of nerves and adrenaline having done its duty. What he wouldn't give for a shower, but he didn't dare ask. As his eyes passed over a delicate vase holding a billowing bunch of lilies, he thought of his wife. The last thing she'd said to him was, don't screw it up, Jasper. She'd always been a bit of a shrew, a trait she picked up from her mother in spades. The constant nagging aside, she'd taken to wearing Jasper's lowly councilman mantle more than he did. She spent his hard-earned dollars at local beauty parlors, telling all the ladies how she was the gem in her husband's eye, his muse. Nothing could be farther from the truth. He'd loved her once, when they'd met in community college, he as a teacher's assistant in both her Econ 101 and Accounting 101 courses, she a sexy little vixen who liked to spend her weekend at the beach. Much to his surprise, she'd taken to him, seeing the determination in his demeanor. She knew he was going somewhere and wanted to be along for the ride. Jasper hadn't thought twice. They'd married and spent every penny of his savings on the small wedding and a week in Tahiti. Things changed as soon as they got home. No more sex. No more school for the new Mrs. Tallis. After his stint in teaching, Jasper earned two master's degrees, one in economics and the other in accounting. Looking back, he wished his degrees were in law like the majority of his peers. 
They looked at him like the number cruncher he was, growing paler by the day in his sunless cubicle. Jasper Tallis worked hard to get where he was, but an independent without a clearly defined political party, the Dems too spendy, the Republicans too gun-happy, he was like a sailor without a vessel. He believed he had all the tools to be a successful politician, namely ideas that he thought both practical and innovative, but none of the clout to get there, no patrons paving the way. To make matters worse, a councilman in a cheap Connecticut district didn't make much money. He had to do his best to take on part-time consulting gigs and accounting freelance work to make ends meet and keep up with his wife's expensive tastes. Maybe the president's summoning could— Someone's voice shook him from his daydreaming. Mr. Tallis? Councilman Tallis looked up. I'm sorry, yes? The large agent took pity on the small man who'd become one of the last options standing. Would you follow me, sir? The president is waiting. Tallis nodded and got up on shaky legs, almost dumping his files on the floor. The agent waited patiently. Sir, if it helps, the president's a pretty good guy. Just be yourself, and I'm sure you'll be fine. Tallis's face turned from a pallid gray to a more solid pink. Thanks. I think I'm okay now. He was escorted into the Situation Room for the second time that day. Many of the same faces from the morning were there, as was President Zimmer. His chaperone pointed to the empty chair across from the president. The men and women sitting around the table went silent and waited for him to find his seat. Setting his files carefully on the highly polished table, Jasper Tallis gratefully took a seat, his knees still knocking together as he adjusted his chair closer to the conference table. President Zimmer smiled warmly. Mr. Tallis... I'd like to thank you for coming on such short notice. It's not a problem, Mr. President. Thank you for having me. The President looked around the room as he spoke. If no one has any objections, why don't we get down to it? Mr. Tallis, what I am about to tell you doesn't even have a clearance. Let's just say the information and its secrecy are paramount to national security. Zimmer turned to the vice president and nodded. Southgate slid a piece of paper across the table to Tallis. That, Mr. Tallis, is a non-disclosure agreement. By signing it, you waive all rights to a fair trial, should this information leak to the public through your actions. You will immediately be remanded to custody and stuck in solitary confinement in a federal prison. Zimmer chuckled, patting Southgate on the arm. What the vice president is trying to say is that what we say stays in this room. Got it? Jasper Tallis gulped, signing the contract. Yes, sir. Good. Now, early yesterday the Russians contacted us. 
New York City. How can we meet this guy? asked Cal. I'm not sure he's up for that. I don't really care what he's up for, Neil. Tell him we'll guarantee his safety. I can send Gaucho and his team up to get him. I'll tell him. Give me a few minutes. I'll call you back. Cal threw the phone back to Daniel. Looks like we may have a break in the case, boys. Councilman Jasper Tallis sat in muted shock. It was hard to believe the Russians were being so brash. Every civilized country in the free world believed in bolstering economic stability and had lived with a sort of gentleman's truce when it came to the global economy. Sure, the occasional spat over Syria or North Korea was to be expected, but to cast aside a proven investment like American treasury bills was guaranteed catastrophe. As a long-time student of global economics, Tallis knew, probably better than most of the people in the room, what would happen should the Russians, and God forbid the Chinese, call in their U.S. debt. So, now that you know the predicament we're in, I'd love to hear about your idea and whether you think it'll help deal with this threat. I will tell you that of the forty or so that came in this morning— Nine came back, you being the last. Once I told them the situation, all but five admitted that their ideas were unfeasible. I would appreciate you giving us your honest opinion should you feel the same. Up until then, Jasper Tallis thought he was one of many economists flown in to help the rising budget tensions in Washington. Not that he had a real shot at the time, given the extreme nature of his plan. But now, his mind spun with the possibilities. He'd been laughed at and cast aside for what many had called a stupid proposition. Even his wife said the solution was half-baked. If those idiots in Connecticut could only see him now. After regaining his composure, Tallis sat up a bit straighter and looked the President in the eye for the first time. Mr. President, I think my plan will work. Chapter 44 The White House 5.19 p.m., March 9th Jasper Tallis took a sip of water from the glass sitting on the table in front of him. The room was deathly quiet, all eyes on him. He was surprised at the lack of smell in the room. Probably some futuristic air filtration system that kept the body odors of adrenaline-fueled politicians at bay during times of crisis. He felt once again in command of his body. He had center stage. Mr. President, as I'm sure you already know, the current national debt stands at around $23 trillion. A majority of that, despite what the media would have you believe, is held by everyday Americans, American municipalities, brokerages, and our own federal government through things like Social Security and the Federal Reserve. The total percentage of that $23 trillion owned by foreign entities currently stands at 34%. The largest portions go to China, then Japan. 
If what you say is true about China, Russia, and some of the other larger stakeholders, we could see a dramatic hit to not only our stock markets, but those around the world. How do you propose we deal with it? Tallis smiled, ready for the coming rebuttals from the room. My plan is simple. Tax all U.S. retirement accounts at 90% and pay off the entire $23 trillion bill in one fell swoop. The room was silent as the president digested the news, his face showing no signs of confusion or distaste. What accounts would this affect? Retirement accounts, like the 401k, IRAs, you name it. Don't you think the American people might be a little pissed that we're taking all their money? asked Zimmer. Tallis didn't search to see who the chuckle from the end came from. At first they will be, Mr. President. But this has to be sold as a plan for the greater good, an opportunity to be out of the hands of the Chinese and Russians. I have also devised a way that the federal government can re-release treasury bills and bonds at reduced rates, but with increased returns. That way we're incentivizing our citizens to invest at home instead of abroad. And what about the countries like Japan that don't want to see us go belly up? They'll have to deal with it. However, now that you've brought the Japanese up, Mr. President, did you know that Japan's debt is by and large owned by its own people? For years the media has talked about the debt Japan owes, but it owes it to the Japanese. Zimmer nodded. So you're saying we take a page out of the Japanese playbook? To a certain degree, Mr. President. The Japanese are still over-leveraged. With all our resources, we don't have to be that way. Japan imports everything they need. We're a major exporter, even now with the oil in the boom happening in the Dakotas. Hell, Mr. President, we could become a self-sustained superpower the likes the world has never seen. Jasper Tallis was breathing heavily, having excited himself into a near frenzy. Just the fact that the President was listening at all made his plan real. For the first time since he'd come up with the idea, Jasper Tallis truly believed it could work. Well, Mr. Tallis, you sure have given us something to think about. Once their guest had been escorted from the Situation Room, those assembled exploded into conversation, most directed at the President. I think we should go with the first option, Mr. President. We need military action, Mr. President. Let's widen the search, Mr. President. Zimmer sat back and listened to the ruckus, still digesting everything he'd heard. It was Vice President Southgate who stood, wrapping his ashen knuckles on the solid table. Gentlemen, why don't we take an hour break for dinner and then reconvene at seven? The President stood, prompting the rest of the room to follow suit. Sounds good to me. I'm starved. President Zimmer invited Travis Hayden, Secretary of State Dryberg, General McMillan, and Vice President Southgate to join him for dinner in the Oval Office. 
He wanted to come up with a game plan before heading back downstairs. His national security adviser would have joined them, but he'd gotten an urgent call as they'd adjourned. The space felt electrified to Zimmer. The air buzzed with anticipation, energy focused toward a single purpose. He'd started the day unsure of where it would lead, but the past few hours had shown him that there could be a way out, a solution to deal with the Russians and their allies. Now he was famished once again, devouring the bacon cheeseburger and fries in front of him before saying a word. The others chatted quietly while they ate, not wanting to intrude on the President's thoughts. Zimmer balled up his paper napkin and landed a perfect free-throw into the wastebasket. Well, gentlemen, what are your thoughts? He turned to General McMillan first, curious to see which way the chairman of the Joint Chiefs was leaning. Mr. President, frankly, I think a flat-out hell no might do the trick. I don't see how military action would achieve much of anything other than to escalate tensions. I think you're already doing the right thing in preparing to take a strong stance against this. I won't lie, General. I'm actually happy to hear you say that. I wasn't sure what you'd say. Macmillan smiled, his bulldog wrinkles forming concave arcs at the sides of his mouth. I may be a Marine, Mr. President, but I'm not a warmonger. Sometimes a few words can be more powerful than the Seventh Fleet floating into town. Zimmer nodded, knowing that Macmillan had a deep grasp of history and was in the process of writing his third book. He'd have to ask the Marine how he ever found the time. Jeff, what do you think? All eyes turned to Dryberg, who'd been quiet throughout the day. He still looked a bit jet-lagged from the day before, gray circles under his eyes and his red hair not as polished as it usually was. As I've said before, Mr. President, a strong stance is needed. Unlike the General, however, I'm not sure we should take any of our options off the table quite yet. We all know the Russians don't listen to much, but they sure as hell listen to force. Reagan showed them that in the 80s. Travis, what about you? Travis shook his head with a laugh. If you told me six months ago that this was what we'd be dealing with, I would have thought you were crazy. That being said, I know you may think I'm crazy. But this idea from the councilman from Connecticut is growing on me. That surprised the president. He knew that Travis Hayden, former SEAL and CEO of an international security and R&D firm, was a staunch conservative. It was one of the reasons he'd wanted him as his chief of staff, to play devil's advocate to the president's left-leaning tendencies. Why the change? I'll say that I agree with both the secretary and the general. We need to be firm, that's a given. But this may be our chance to get out of this whole debt mess. I've always hated the idea that America is beholden to anyone, 
I know it's supposed to be a way of life now, but it just aggravates the hell out of me. If we can come up with a way to convince the American people that it's not only a way out of the Russian fiasco, but also an end to our financial woes, hell, it might be worth a shot. Everyone in the room took a moment to digest Travis's declaration, obviously a surprise by the looks on everyone's faces. Vice President Southgate took a measured sip of his tea and said, First, let me say that I agree with Mr. Hayden. We've given away too much power, to China especially, and I fear that if we go at the same pace, they and others may one day have all the incentive they need to take over control of our country. Second, Although I agree with the recommendation, I'm not sure we're ready for it. Do not doubt that the reaction will be swift and furious. Americans will beat down our doors and call us thieves in the night. That's one problem. The second, one I believe more detrimental, is the fact that we as politicians do a poor job managing the money we're given. Southgate looked across at Travis. Yes, Mr. Hayden, I know you may be shocked to hear me say that, but I've been in Washington long enough to know that government may not be the best solution to all of America's woes. That being said, I still think we should take a hard look at Mr. Tollis's proposal. It was like Southgate had admitted to being a woman. Zimmer found it hard not to stare at the old senator. To those in the know, it was fairly common knowledge that politicians spent money faster than a gambling addict in Vegas, but to say it out loud, and by a veteran former senator no less, was quite the revelation. Travis coughed to keep from laughing. General McMillan rubbed his hands together. Secretary of State Dryberg stared out the window. President Zimmer took it all in. The recommendations sound, but not quite what he'd expected. It didn't matter. He felt different than he had for months. Whether it was the fact that an insidious drug no longer coursed through his veins, or that he'd come to grips with his new position, President Brandon Zimmer would not sit by and watch a foreign power bully his beloved country. Okay, gentlemen, let's come up with a plan. Quick pause in our story to remind you about novel nutrition. Enhance your reading sessions with our bespoke supplements. See if you can figure out which blend is our favorite. Oh, and just for Book TV listeners, use code BOOKTV at NovelNutrition.co for a special 20% discount. Now let's return to our story. Chapter 45 The White House 6.55 p.m. March 9th It was determined that they should adjourn until morning. They still had time to decide and would reconvene at 6 a.m. Vice President Southgate volunteered to deliver the news to the rest of the cabinet. Dryberg and Macmillan both said their goodbyes and left, each heading back to their respective offices. 
That left the president alone in the Oval Office with Travis. After the excitement of the day, they were happy to take a much-needed load off. Zimmer loosened his tie while Travis took off his navy blue suit jacket and tossed it onto the back of the couch. He looked to his boss. Would you think less of me if I ordered a glass of bourbon? Only if you didn't get one for me. They waited for their drinks to arrive, purposely talking about things other than business, knowing that they'd have another long day ahead of them. Round and round was the game of politics played. After a couple healthy swigs from their bourbons, they turned back to the task at hand. How about Southgate coming out of left field? asked Travis. My eyes almost popped out of my head. It may still be too early to say this, but I think Southgate's coming around. Fingers crossed that he's seen the error of his ways and, God willing, understands that he is not infallible. I would not have believed it in a million years. You really pulled a rabbit out of your hat when you asked him to be your number two. Shit, I thought you were crazy. Zimmer laughed. Maybe I was. Travis almost spit out the drink in his mouth. Jesus! Zimmer laughed louder as Travis tried not to let the burning liquid come out of his nose, pinching it with two fingers. You okay? Travis nodded, wincing. Damn, you got me there. He shook his head, clearing the pain, and then took another careful sip. You have an idea of where you want to take this whole Russia thing? Zimmer did. His mind had conceived an option during the hours of listening to his advisors and their guests. It was so clear. He wondered if that's what had happened to Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis, or Reagan during the Iran-Contra affair. I think so. The look on Zimmer's face made Travis cock his head. You look like you've got your mind made up. What is it? Let me sleep on it. Possibly with the help of one more of these. The president lifted up his empty cocktail and nodded for another. Dryberg stomped into his office, ignoring the call from his secretary who asked if he needed anything before she left for the day. Closing his door behind him, he flung his winter coat across the room, pumping his arm in exultation. He was so close. The president was bending just the way he wanted. He could have kissed Hayden for what he'd said over dinner. Dreiber had planned on the former CEO being one of his biggest hurdles. On the other hand, in his excitement, he'd wanted to reach over for the vice president's neck and strangle him. He would have thought the classic liberal to be 100% on board for taxing the American people. Something had changed with Southgate. He was still the ornery old eccentric, but now he looked almost like a team player, a fact that completely baffled Dryberg. Not a week earlier, it had been Southgate who'd given him the information on the president's collusion with Hayden and his associates. He had no idea what had changed, but it didn't sit well with the bold Secretary of State.
He hadn't risen as far as he had without knowing everything about his friends and enemies alike. But he didn't think it would matter. He had the president's attention. With that, along with the help of a few outside forces, he wouldn't have to do a thing. President Zimmer would bring about his own undoing, leaving one man in the perfect position to take over the presidency. Jeffrey Dryberg. Congressman McKnight didn't like the silence. He'd always equated the lack of noise to some impending doom. As a child, it was his father's return from another rat hole, reeking of cheap whiskey, staggering in, demanding this and that from his wife, inevitably ending with a thorough beating. So, as he sat in his office, the last one there, with no noise, not even his usually buzzing phone, his mind began to wander, his heartbeat ticking faster. He stood up suddenly, nearly knocking over the glass of water on his paper-scattered desk, grabbing it just in time, saving the paperwork he'd finally gotten from the Secret Service concerning the untimely death of Santos Lockwood. They'd determined the cause of death to be a massive heart attack. Instant death. Damn him. Without Lockwood's updates, he was effectively blind to the goings-on at the White House. The good news was that not a word had been said to him about his involvement. They had, however, made the connection with the Russian scientist. McKnight imagined it was only a matter of time before the black-market capitalist was nabbed by a few commandos and whisked to an undisclosed location for interrogation. With his involvement not even on the radar, McKnight could focus on just how he wanted to exploit the president's weaknesses. Until he could get another mole inside the White House, it wouldn't be a bad idea to back off and regroup. Besides, he had Santos's mother to deal with. Maybe he could somehow convince the Secret Service to expedite transporting Lockwood's remains home. Until then, he was stuck consoling the grieving widow. Six phone calls that day. He couldn't take much more of it. His capacity for empathy was waning quickly. He had to get back to the task at hand namely how to further discredit the president and, by doing so, any other contenders in the Democratic Party. The American people had to first come to the conclusion that their votes must lean right. It was already happening in congressional districts across the country. The next logical step was the White House. Even though the presidential primaries were still years away, there were steps to take, donors to align, plans to be made. In some circles he was becoming a contender, the voice of the new Republican Party. That's what they were calling him. There was much to do, but McKnight had faith in his abilities. In three years it would be him sitting in the Oval Office, commanding the attention of the world, and finally showing his father that he could be somebody. Chapter 46. The White House. 5.05 a.m., March 10th. 
Travis nodded to the agent outside the door and entered the Oval Office. The lights were dimmed and the fire wasn't lit. For a moment, he wasn't sure if the president was even there until the chair behind the large desk swiveled around. President Zimmer was already dressed in what he'd told Travis was his presidential attire. A navy suit, robin's egg shirt, and a blood-red tie patterned with tiny impressions of George Washington. Impossible to pick up unless you looked very closely. You look like you're ready to go on television, Travis joked, making his way to one of the chairs on the opposite side of the president's desk. I am, said Zimmer, not a hint of play in his countenance, unwaveringly determined. Travis glanced at his watch in confusion. I'm sorry, did I forget about something? I thought, change of plans. I'm going on at 6.30. A feeling of dread crept into Travis's stomach. He didn't sit down. What's the occasion? There was something in Zimmer's eyes that reminded Travis of one of his SEAL instructors, a command master chief everyone called Old Smokey. The man constantly puffed on a cigar or had it jammed in the corner of his mouth. He had a way of glaring at you that made you believe he would have his way no matter the price. I thought a lot about this whole debacle last night, and I realized the answer was sitting right in front of me plain as day. Would you like to tell me what that is? The unease subsided somewhat, Travis getting a feel for his boss's vibe. It was like a commander who suddenly saw the weakness in the enemy's defenses. Exploit it. Zimmer chuckled, his eyes still cold. I took for granted the power of this office. I was so worried about not making waves that I forgot what my job was. That ends today. And you're going to do that by... This time there was a genuine smile on the president's face. It drew Travis in and even made him take a seat, wanting, no, needing to know where Zimmer was heading. I learned it from you and Cal. Overwhelming force, right? Travis nodded, still not understanding. You said yourself the only thing the Russians and the Chinese respect is force. Well, I'm about to give them some. 6.30 a.m. Paul Douse was a first-year reporter with the Washington Times. He'd been pulling an all-nighter when his boss called from home, ordering him to the White House. Paul had luckily been one of the first to arrive, snagging a seat in the second row, the first being saved for the craggy veteran reporters who always seemed to get their questions answered. He'd never been to a White House briefing, so everything felt alive, despite the bored looks on the faces of the tired camera crews and the other reporters straggling in. No one knew what the president was going to say, but that didn't mean it was going to be big news. 
Zimmer could just be using the early time slot as practice for the future. He'd been shy with the media up until that point. The news conference was so last minute that only half of the normal press corps were present as the president took the stage, grim as he walked up to the podium. Behind him streamed his new chief of staff, the vice president, Secretary of State Dryberg, and General McMillan. Paul leaned over and nudged the reporter next to him, a balding guy with coffee breath and hair coming out of his ear. You know what this is about? The man looked at him like he was an idiot. No. Paul wanted to tell the man to chill the fuck out, but the president began. Fellow Americans, I come before you today with news of another threat to our national security. The room perked up, all eyes now focused on the podium. Two days ago we received word from our friends in Russia. I use the term friends loosely in this case. Paul started scribbling in his notepad, wanting to get the best tidbits, a feeling that this was to be a momentous speech. The communication was brief but firm. Despite our years of friendship and untold billions of aid, Russia has now decided to cash in, to call all the U.S. debt it holds. Not only that, they have also convinced certain other countries, who will for now remain nameless, to do the same. The air left the room. Reporters leaned forward, some with recorders outstretched, wanting to capture every word. Russia has given us the ultimatum to pay back the investments they made in good faith and that we provided in kind in seventy-two hours. Zimmer looked directly in the main camera, his eyes burning, more determined than the young reporter had ever seen him. While this may come as a shock to most of you, it is in fact within Russia's right to cash in its chips, to step away from the table. Zimmer smiled, still staring at the camera. Fellow Americans, I come to you with a solution, a way to reconsolidate all federal debt back to the United States so that we will no longer be bullied by our supposed friends across the sea. As soon as I leave this room, and with the help of the Vice President and the Cabinet, I will be sending an emergency bill to the House floor. The summarized details will be released to media outlets and posted on the White House website within the hour. The American Investment Initiative will be voted on before the close of business today. If your elected officials cannot come to a consensus, I will institute my plan through the executive powers given to me by the Constitution of the United States. I hope it will not come to that. Now, this may not seem like the best deal for you, but trust me when I say that in the long run, it will make us stronger and less dependent on foreign money. If the international community no longer feels we are a good investment, we will take that investment back. Desperate times call for desperate measures, and this is one of those times. But out of this ordeal shines brilliant opportunity, an economic opportunity we have not had in over one hundred years. 
we will once again show the world that we value our friendships, but that we will not be bullied. Travis caught up to the president as he left the shouting reporters in the briefing room. It was like he'd said they'd just had another 9-11 or dropped an atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Utter chaos as the president's men filed out behind him. You sure that was the best idea? Travis whispered to the president. He'd known the gist of what Zimmer was going to say, but hearing it said out loud had taken every ounce of self-control he had not to show surprise. Zimmer nodded, walking purposefully down the hallway. Just wait. I'm sure the phone calls will be coming in now. The president was right. Ellen was in a frenzy when they neared the Oval Office. She looked up, flashing lights blinking up and down on the two phones on her desk. Mr. President, I... President Zimmer walked over to the faithful public servant and placed a hand on her shoulder. Take a deep breath, Ellen. But all these calls, I don't know... Tell them all that I'm unavailable and will return their calls as soon as I can. He smiled at her reassuringly. She tried her best to nod, but instead turned back to the blinking wrath. Travis felt sorry for her. It was going to be a long day for the White House staff. By 7 a.m., every major stock exchange in the world was closed. By 7.15 a.m., almost every world leader was in a closed meeting with their closest advisors. The Russians were in a state of shock. Troops had to be called into Moscow to close down main thoroughfares. Thousands were making their way to the capital on foot as the Kremlin braced itself. In one fell swoop, President Zimmer had exposed Russia's plan and enraged the rest of the world to such a level that presidents, prime ministers, bankers, CEOs, and world citizens were all looking to Russia for an explanation. As was their way, instead of responding immediately, Russia closed its gates, letting the mobs grow, becoming more mobilized by the minute. By 7.30 a.m., the entire world had heard the details of Zimmer's plan. The American government would tax all U.S. retirement plans at 90%, giving them more than enough cash to recall all forms of investment, not only held in foreign hands, but also held within the United States. The next step would be to reissue higher-interest bonds and treasury bills only to Americans, at a reduced rate, of course. There was no telling how long markets would be shuttered. The impact of the news had been deafening, like a thousand explosions going off all over the world. Through it all, President Zimmer stayed in the Oval Office, monitoring the news with his chief of staff and Vice President Southgate. Few words were said and no advice was given. His men knew America's card had been played and that it would only be a matter of time before they got an answer. Chapter 47 New York City, New York 8.19 a.m. 
March 10th. The helicopter landed softly on the rooftop pad, kicking up swirls of snow in the process and making Cal, Daniel, and Trent shield their eyes. They hadn't waited long, the pilot making good time despite the airspace traffic. The side hatch eased open, the passenger careful not to let the draft slam it forward. After leaning over to say something to the pilot, the man closed the door and made his way to the waiting three. Cal stuck out his hand as the helicopter pilot applied power and lifted the bird back into the sky, away in seconds. Mr. Layton, I'm Cal Stokes. These are my associates, Daniel Briggs and Willie Trent. Jonas Layton shook Cal's hand. Please, call me Jonas. Cal nodded. How about we head over to the hotel? Sounds good to me. I've had my fill of heights for the day. They'd talked briefly over the phone, Cal finally convincing the cautious Leighton to meet him in New York. It was plain to see the man was on edge, his eyes darting as they drove the five blocks back to the peninsula. Cal kept the conversation light, Master Sergeant Trent providing the comic relief. Daniel drove in silence, alert as usual. Once they'd stepped back into their palatial suite, Daniel taking Leighton's coat, they got down to business. Cal dove right in. Tell us about what happened in Paris. Leighton told them about the attempted kidnapping, impressing Cal with his level of detail and detachment. Most non-military citizens froze or ran in life-or-death events. Leighton then described who had helped him. It's a good thing you knew that French guy, said Cal. I've made it my business to foster a lot of mutually beneficial relationships over the years. I like to think my friends far outweigh my enemies. Cal didn't say what he was thinking that you could have all the friends in the world, but it only took one enemy to make your life miserable, or worse, end it. Neil told us what you'd do when we've done a little research online, but I'm still confused. How did you get involved in this? Leighton looked uncomfortable, pinching the bridge of his nose. That's a complicated question. Why don't you start at the beginning? Again, Leighton paused before answering. I don't know how comfortable I am telling you. The people that are after me, look, we do this for a living, Jonas. We've all been shot at more times than we can count. We don't scare easily. Why don't you just tell us? I just have a feeling this goes much higher than you guys could imagine. Let me guess. You think someone in the government is involved? Leighton nodded. I'm not sure yet, but it may have implications up to the president. Cal felt a jolt pass through his body. Wait, what are you talking about? I can't prove it yet, 
but I think the current administration may be behind this whole thing. The White House staff was on high alert, running to and fro with phones glued to their ears or eyes fixed on tablets. So many calls were coming in that they'd had to stop answering the anonymous ones and solely focus on those they knew, or thought they knew, were important. Ellen Hansen, the president's secretary, played gatekeeper almost as much as the augmented security staff. She had piles of messages for the president. But the president didn't want to be bothered. He hadn't returned one phone call. Instead, he sat calmly in the Oval Office, watching the storm like a disinterested outsider, quickly glancing at each new message, sometimes frowning, sometimes with an amused look on his face. Ellen couldn't fathom what her boss was doing. Shouldn't he be trying to fix the mess he'd made? Shouldn't he have the courtesy to return at least a handful of the calls? But that wasn't her job. She did what she could, sifting through the growing weeds, sorting as she went. As the morning wore on, her mind quietly analyzed the situation, the determined look of the president, the way he kept saying, It's going to be fine, Ellen. Truth be told, she hadn't known what to think of the president for months. He'd seemed nice enough, but somehow not up to snuff. Now it was different. There was a certain air of confidence he hadn't had in weeks past. This was a new man, a leader. Ellen smiled at the thought, then pursed her lips and got back to the task at hand. I assume you've seen what's happening in Washington right now, asked Cal. Of course. But I think the president's speech has something to do with this. Cal almost laughed at Leighton's comment. How could the man they called the fortune teller be so wrong? Cal knew Zimmer, knew why he'd done what he had. How could Leighton possibly think the president somehow had a hand in orchestrating the Russian offensive? Look, I'm not sure how much you know about the president, but he happens to be... Cal's phone buzzed on the table, everyone looking down as the caller ID popped up. Neil Patel. Let me get that. Cal picked up the phone and stood. What's up? Hey, are you watching the news? It's on mute. Oh, okay. Hey, I've got something for you. I was finally able to find something that may be of value. You told me to track down the security chief's movement over the past month. Well, Martindale's head of security got a safety deposit box two weeks before he was murdered. It's about a mile from where you're staying. I'm not sure it'll help, but it's something. You think you can get me access? Of course. Okay, send me the information. I feel worthless here. We'll head out now. Cal ended the call and looked to his friends. Well, fellas, looks like we don't have to sit on our asses for the next hour. Let's go rob a bank. Ellen opened the door to the Oval Office cautiously, her heart thrumming, excited energy coursing through her fifty-year-old body. 
The president was still behind his desk, flipping through the last batch of messages she'd brought in minutes earlier. He looked up. More messages? Ellen glanced at Mr. Hayden and the vice president. Uh, no, sir. Zimmer motioned her over, a warm smile to embolden her steps. She walked around the desk and handed him the blue sticky note, almost not letting go. Zimmer grabbed the note and read it, one eyebrow rising as a smile tugged at the corner of his mouth. Thank you, Ellen. I trust you'll keep this to yourself? Of course, Mr. President. Ellen Hansen turned and headed for the door, realizing suddenly that she'd just witnessed history being made. Even if she could tell her husband, he'd never believe her. Chapter 48 The White House 8.53 a.m., March 10th President Zimmer read the note again, shaking his head. Travis and Southgate looked on, waiting to hear what it said. Looks like we've got a live one, gentlemen. Who is it? asked Travis. Zimmer held up a finger and picked up the desktop phone, referencing the sticky note and dialing a number. He waited for the pickup. Yes, I got your message. Silence as the president nodded and listened to the other end. Yes. Give me the address and I'll have my people pick you up. Zimmer flipped the sticky note over and wrote something on the other side. Got it. Yes, thank you. I look forward to seeing you. He hung up the phone and looked up at Travis. Can you see if Brett's outside? Travis nodded and walked to the door and opened it. He said something to the agent standing post and the man spoke into his lapel mic. Two minutes later, Brett Steyer, the head of Zimmer's security detail, marched in. Yes, Mr. President. Zimmer waved the sticky note in the air and said, there's an address on here. I want you to send a small team discreetly to go pick up the person at this house and bring him here. And if you could bring him in the back way, that would probably be best. I don't want anyone else seeing him. Stayer walked over and grabbed the note. Yes, sir. I'll take them myself. That would be best. Thank you, Brett. Yes, sir. Stayer left and Travis spoke up first. Now can you tell us what's going on? Zimmer rubbed his hands together. Things are about to get interesting. New York City Daniel let Cal off at the curb. He and Trent would swing back around when Cal was finished or arrested. As they pulled back into traffic, Cal looked up at the door. It didn't look like a bank. It looked more like a high-end shoe store. He couldn't see any teller counters inside, 
just modern desks with professionally, if not elegantly, attired workers. He stepped in the door. The subtle smell of pomegranate and some flower he couldn't place, greeting him along with the long-legged blonde who stepped out from around her desk as soon as the door chimed. Good morning, sir. How may I help you? Having already hacked into the bank system, it was easy for Neil to replace the true owner's pictures with one of Cal's headshots. Luckily, the state's government services had yet to report the man's death to the financial institution. The signature samples were also substituted with Cal's handwriting. A paper copy of the deceased driver's ID was now graced by Cal's likeness, thanks to Neil's DMV back-end intrusion, and he had all the codes needed for entrance. The customer service-oriented bank manager happily gave Cal access to the deposit box. Ten minutes later, Cal was saying his goodbyes and thank yous, the twenty-something teller going so far as to give him her card should he need further assistance. He smiled and departed. Daniel found a spot across the congested pavement and double-tapped the horn to get Cal's attention. He caught his friend's eye with a wave and Cal headed over. Once he was safely in the passenger seat, Daniel pulled out into traffic and headed toward the hotel. What did you get? asked Daniel. Cal stuck his hand in his pants pocket and held up a thumb drive with the Dale and Moon logo on it, a moon superimposed over a meadow. This was it. I guess we'll see when we get back. The White House Zimmer had instructed his security not to allow anyone to enter the Oval Office until he gave the word. Roughly thirty minutes after departing, Brett Steyer opened the side door and ushered the President's guest in. The President rose and walked to greet him. Mr. Ambassador, how nice to see you again. Igor Bukov the Russian ambassador to the United States, had a fedora pulled low in an obvious attempt to conceal his face. He pulled it off and shook the president's hand, the hand that Zimmer noticed trembled as he took it. Thank you, Mr. President. Zimmer could smell the vodka on the man's breath. Why don't we have a seat? Could I get you anything? asked Zimmer. Bukov glanced nervously at Travis and the vice president, and said with a touch of embarrassment, A glass of vodka would be very much appreciated, Mr. President. Done. As Travis placed the order, the Russian took a seat in the chair closest to the fire, as if he needed the added warmth. He did not take off his overcoat, but rather just stared into the flames somberly. Once he'd settled into his own chair, the president said, Mr. Ambassador, why don't you tell the vice president and Mr. Hayden what you asked me over the phone? Bukov nodded, not looking up from the fire. Then, as if it took every ounce of strength he had left, he sighed and turned back to the others. Mr. President, gentlemen, 
I am here to officially request asylum in your country. Jonas Layton was talking to Neil on a video conference when the others returned to their hotel suite. He had headphones in his ears and didn't even notice when they walked in. Situational awareness, dude, thought Cal. He tapped Layton on the shoulder, making him jump. Oh, hey. Cal waved and held up the thumb drive to Neil on the computer screen. Got something? Neil squinted. Have you tried to access it yet? Nope. Thought you and Jonas might be better at that. Jonas, do you mind if Cal uses your computer? Asked Neil. Go for it. Cal handed the thumb drive to Jonas, who removed the cap and inserted it into his laptop. The three Marines looked over his shoulder as he attempted to access the files. Looks like it's encrypted. Jonas clicked a button to share the screenshot with Neil. Neil, you seeing this? Yeah. Be careful. It looks like it may have some kind of kill switch. Jonas did a bunch of clicking and dragging that Cal only half understood. He knew enough about computers, but was nowhere near the level of Jonas and Neil. I think I've got it. With one more click, the sole folder opened, now showing others. Where should I start? Click on the one that says SVID, suggested Cal. Jonas did. When it opened, there were maybe twenty files labeled numerically. Want me to play one? Yes, said Cal. Jonas double-clicked on the first file and a new screen popped up, taking a moment to load the video. When it finally did, the five men watched as a grid of four surveillance videos came up. They watched for a couple minutes, no one saying a thing, trying to capture the significance. This could take forever, said Trent, already bored by the display. Why don't we try one of the other folders? said Cal. Once again, Jonas did as instructed, double-clicking on another folder and opening the first file inside. This one contained some type of ledger. Or was it a bank statement? Cal couldn't tell. Tell you what. Jonas, could you send this over to Neil so his guys can dissect it? asked Cal. No problem. Sending it now, Neil. Cool. I'll let you know when I've got something, said Neil, already diving in. Neil's face disappeared and Jonas shut the laptop. Cal took a seat and leveled his gaze onto Jonas. Let's get back to the conversation we were having before we left. I'm curious to know why you think the president could be involved with the Russians. Jonas's mouth became a hard line. Cal could tell he didn't want to say. Did that mean he was involved too? He was going to kill Neil if that was the case. Jonas exhaled and returned Cal's stare. It was Jeffrey Dryberg who tried to have me kidnapped. Chapter 49 The White House 
10, 11 a.m., March 10th. It was like time had stopped in the Oval Office. President Zimmer looked to Travis, then to Vice President Southgate, both men speechless. My God, whispered the President. Ambassador Bukov had explained the rationale behind the incursion in Lithuania and the coalition to tank the dollar. Behind it all had been one man, Jeffrey Dryberg. Mr. President, I must say that I am ashamed of my role in this charade. You sure as hell wouldn't have felt sorry if you'd gotten away with it, snapped Travis. Bukov didn't disagree. What can I say? It is part of the game we play. Zimmer interjected before Travis could say anything. What was the end goal? Why would Dryberg want us to look bad? Surely he knew it would come back on him as well. The Russian shrugged. He did not tell me this, but I believe he had planned on using either scenario to see you removed from office. Lithuania might not have done it, but at the time your support within your country was not as strong as it could have been. Now, with the debt crisis, I believe he somehow would have helped public sentiment turn against you. Not that it would be hard. Again, this is merely speculation on my part. Zimmer knew the second part was especially true. He'd known it would be a gamble taking money from Americans, but it had seemed like the only shot. How did you come to the conclusion that asylum was your only course? Bukov laughed. He was in a better mood than when he'd arrived, already having downed three glasses of vodka and now feeling safe within the confines of the American capital. The leaders of my country are not as forgiving as you, Mr. President. I was able to convince them that the Lithuania ploy had not been my fault, although I'm ashamed to say one of my underlings disappeared after the fact. But the idea to play off of your national debt was my idea, at least in their minds. Early this morning I got word from a friend that a team of assassins was on their way to find me. Luckily, I'd had my television on when you gave your speech, or I might not be here now. It was so crazy that Zimmer almost didn't believe it. How could Dryberg be so reckless, so stupid? Maybe there was a chance that Bukov was lying just to save his own skin. Before he could ask more about Bukov's relationship with Dryberg, Travis interrupted. Sir? I just got a text from Cal. He says he needs to talk to you now. Can't it wait? He said 911, sir. He never says that. Dial his number and give me the phone. Travis speed dialed his cousin and handed the cell phone to the president. Zimmer ignored the confused look on the face of the soon-to-be-drunk Bukov. Cal, it's Brandon. Oh, hey. What's up? We're kind of in the middle of something right now. Yeah, sorry. I just thought that you should know. We've got proof that Dryberg is in on the debt deal with the Russians. Wait, what? How did you get it? 
It's a long story, but we've got him. He's been testing the market, muscling his way into companies. I can explain it later, but I just thought you should know. Zimmer couldn't find the words to reply for a moment. You still there, Brandon? Yeah. Thanks for the heads up. No problem. How you doing? I'm... I'll be okay. Zimmer shook the cobwebs of shock from his mind. Hey, how quick can you get down here? We're still wrapping things up in New York, but I need you here now. No problem. I'll let you know when we land. President Zimmer handed the phone back to Travis and looked to Ambassador Bukov. Ambassador, I'm happy to grant you asylum in our country, but there's a favor I'll be needing first. Cal pocketed his phone and moved to grab his gear. Change of plans. We're all going to D.C. Daniel and Master Sergeant Trent nodded. It was Jonas who looked up in surprise. Me too? Unless you want to sit here by yourself, I think it might be a good idea. Cal could tell by the look on Jonas's face that he wanted to go anywhere but the nation's capital. Trent walked over to the wizard billionaire and offered him a hand up from his seat. Don't worry, Jonas. I won't leave your side. Whether it was the thought of being alone or the comfort of having the near-seven-foot power of Master Sergeant Willie Trent as his protector, Jonas Layton gathered his belongings and prepared to leave with the others. As they went to board the private elevator, Cal's phone buzzed in his pocket. He took it out and glanced at the text. His eyes went wide. No fucking way. What is it? asked Daniel. Cal shook his head, eyes steeled. We've got to make one stop before we head south. They pulled into the stone drive, the large black gates opening with a yawn, fog hanging lazily on the perfectly trimmed grass. Daniel drove the rented sedan around the curving path and up to their destination. The sprawling mansion awaited, Leo Martindale standing inside the front glass door. He was talking to someone, and it took Cal a moment to realize Leo was on the phone with a Bluetooth in his ear. He waved to Cal as he got out of the car. Cal bent down to talk to his companions. Top, you stay here with Jonas. Daniel, why don't you come with me? I may need your help remembering some of the details. Daniel left the car running and stepped out into the cool Southampton air. Cal led the way in, the front door already held open by Leo. He pointed to his ear, indicating that he was still on the phone. Cal nodded. They followed the billionaire through the house as Leo finished his call. When they got to the kitchen, he pulled out his earpiece and set it on the reclaimed wood countertop. What's going on? Did you guys find something? asked Leo, grabbing a smart water from the fridge. We did, answered Cal. So? 
Cal put a finger to his lips and pointed up as if to say someone was listening. I'm the only one here. My family's tucked away in Vale until this thing blows over and I had the staff leave so I could have some privacy. Let's talk out back, Cal suggested. Leo's eyes scrunched in confusion, but he nodded. Let me just grab my coat. Tell me where it is and I'll catch up with you, said Daniel. We're tied on time, Leo. We've got a flight out in less than an hour, said Cal, already headed to the backyard. Again, the confused look. Okay. My coat's in the front closet next to the door we came in through. Grab the one with EGA on the front, will you? Daniel nodded and went to retrieve the coat. Cal was halfway to the back door. Leo followed. Cal walked at a fast clip, and it took Leo a second to catch up to him on the gravel path leading to the steps spilling out onto the beach. Hey, what's with all the hush-hush? asked Leo, starting to shiver as the cold wind whipped through his collared shirt. They've got your house wired. We can't talk in there. Wait, who has my house wired? Cal walked faster. I'll tell you as soon as we get as far away from your house as we can. The sound of the waves should mask any directional microphones. Cal, what the hell is going on? They know you're helping us and they've been watching. Who? Cal didn't answer. By the time they'd walked down onto the beach, the wind was blowing hard, kicking up stinging sand in their faces. There wasn't a soul on the beach in either direction. Cal kept walking toward the large breakers. Leo followed, shivering harder, hands tucked in his armpits. Once they'd gotten five feet from the Atlantic, Cal finally turned, looking all around, making sure no one was close. Not even the other houses were visible, the fog laying a dull cover over the landscape. They were alone. Can you tell me what's going on now, Cal? Come on, I'm freezing out here. Cal didn't seem to care, gazing out over the ocean, dark clouds obscuring the horizon and a storm blowing in overhead. Why did you do it? asked Cal over the sound of the pounding surf. Do what? Why did you help Dryberg? Leo's face hardened. What are you talking about? You know what I'm fucking talking about. The stocks. The debt play with Russia. Cal could tell by the look on Leo's face that he knew he was caught. Neil had found it all. Once they tracked Dryberg's actions, it had only been a matter of time before the trail led to Leo's firm. To cap it all off, Leo's dead head of security had left more than enough proof, including video and documentation that proved Martindale was the mastermind behind the plot. He'd even had the foresight to leave a letter with a summary of his boss's actions and the final thought that Martindale was on to him with the words, I think he knows, and that's why I'm leaving this for someone to find. You think you're so fucking smart, Cal. You have no idea. 
please tell me. The world isn't all about right and wrong anymore. There's a whole world of gray that most people never take a second to consider. Did you know that if we go on the same course we've been on, China will own us in less than twenty years? It's true. I've done the math. I've been on the committees. These fucking communists want to own us. They want to see us ground into the dirt and piss on our graves. Well, I'm not going to sit back and let it happen. So you got in bed with Jeffrey Dryberg and concocted this scheme with the Russians. It never would have happened if the old president hadn't left office. With Zimmer, we had a real chance. Sure, he'd be the scapegoat, but that was the price we were willing to pay. It wasn't just him, Leo. There were a lot of others who were hurt, who were going to lose it all. You think I don't know that? You think I don't care? Well, I fucking do, goddammit. I care so much that I'm willing to risk everything I have to see that my country doesn't fall into the hands of the Russians and the Chinese. What about the money you were set to make? You mean to tell me that wasn't part of it? That question rocked Leo back on his heels. What? What money? Your old security chief left some files in a safety deposit box. He was tracking you for almost a year. He had everything. The names of the companies you and Dryberg manipulated. The politicians you coerced or paid off and the exact plan you were already in the process of implementing to short-sell millions of seemingly random stocks and then buy up as many treasury bills as you could once the president's new plan was implemented. He even had a taped conversation of you and Dryberg talking about how he would help you once he took over the presidency. Oh, and that doesn't even include the people you either had killed or were going to kill just to get your way. Are you saying that wasn't true? Leo smiled, the facade gone. Okay, you got me. What do you want me to say? That I did it all for my country? That I didn't want to make a dime? I'm human, okay? And what about the employee that you killed? Your own head of security? How did you do it, Leo? Let me guess. You lured him to your place, and he deserved what he got. I warned him not to go snooping, but he didn't listen. So you killed him. I could tell he was getting antsy. He was going to tell someone, said Leo, his eyes still cold. So why did you call us? Did you even know my father? I knew who he was. And it wasn't even my idea to call you. It was Dryberg's. He said you were somehow tied to the president and that if... You took an oath to defend our country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. If you still believe that word for word, you're more naive than you look, Cal. Arrest me if you want, but you know the friends I keep. I'll be out before you can say Smedley Butler. Leo laughed and turned to walk back to his house. A stupid thing to do. He didn't get three steps. Zimmer had told Cal on his way to Southampton to assess the situation and deal with it as he saw fit. See what Martindale had to say, 
and either bring him in or seek an alternative. No hesitation. Cal's arm was around Martindale's neck and pulling him toward the roiling surf. Struggling to free himself, Leo first pulled with his hands and then threw elbows back into Cal. It didn't slow the Marine, who took the ineffectual blows as his shoes entered the water, then his ankles, a wave finally crashing over and soaking them both. In the lull between two waves, Cal made his move, letting go of his chokehold and whipping Leo around to face him. Cal's hands now gripping the man's neck, thumbs inserted on either side of Leo's Adam's apple. The two Marines stared at each other, one in fear, the other with unwavering determination. You should know this part, Leo. One of the first lessons you learn in boot camp. There's only one thing you can do with a traitor. Leo's eyes bulged as Cal dove forward, plunging the billionaire under the waves, blasting the last shred of breath out of his lungs with the freezing salt water and Cal's two knees driving into Leo's chest. The struggle lasted less than a minute, but still Cal held, taking the pounding of the relentless waves as they crashed in one after another. Finally, when he was certain Leo couldn't possibly be alive, Cal dragged the body deeper into the ocean, looking for the current he knew to be there. And then he found it, the undertow so strong that it almost swept him with it. Cal released the body and felt the tide take hold without prompting. He turned back to the house and moved to join Daniel, who stood waiting with a towel on the beach. They had a plane to catch. Chapter 50 Manassas, Virginia 8.25 a.m., March 11th The fog rolled over the rises and into the valleys without a sound like a white carpet being pulled into place by an unseen hand. There wasn't a sound except for the drip of still-melting snow falling from the end of the roof and into a small puddle. Jeffrey Dryberg loved those mornings, fresh, cool air, the same his ancestors had probably felt years ago in the hills of the old country. Men and women carving out simple lives, oppressed by the lords of Britain, struggling just to stay alive. He had more than they ever had, won by hard work and perseverance. His thoughts were interrupted by thumping steps on the old wood floors, originally installed in the late 1800s. The front door squeaked open, and Igor Bukov stepped out, holding two steaming cups of coffee, their aroma quickly making their way to Dryberg's senses. Dark roast, black as night. Here you are, Jeffrey. Bukov handed the first mug to his friend, who took it gratefully, inhaling deeply over the offering. He'd invited Dryberg up for the day. No security. It had seemed a strange request, but Dryberg understood his friend's current predicament. The Russian president was not happy with his ambassador. 
Bukov had called in the middle of the night and asked for his help in containing the situation and possibly helping him hide if needed. It wasn't the first time they'd met outside official channels. Nothing beats a cup of coffee on a morning like this. Bukov chuckled. Well, that may be true in America. In my country, we tend to start cold days with a mug of vodka. Dryberg smiled, having spent more than a few of those early wake-ups with his friend in some godforsaken land miles away from civilization. I like your place, said Dryberg, sipping his coffee and enjoying the welcome warmth flowing through his body. It reminded me of one of my family estates in Russia. I bought it from an old farmer who could no longer maintain the land. Would you ever sell it? Dryberg was always on the lookout for good property. Land meant more to immigrants than the gold it was bought with, a lesson his father taught a young Jeffrey almost daily. If I was offered the right price, possibly. Dryberg returned his gaze to the pastures as Bukov took a seat in the Adirondack chair next to him. So what was so important that I had to drive all the way to Manassas? Bukov sighed. This business with your president. It has my government very worried. As well they should be. Old Zimmer really called your bluff. Jeffrey. It was you who told me that the president would have a very different reaction. Now I am the one being blamed for this mistake as the entire world comes down on my people. It was true. The last two days had not been good for the Russians. Banks from Japan to Switzerland were threatening to freeze all Russian assets until the debacle was concluded. Every ally the Russians made in their planning went back on their word, their leaders personally calling the American president to apologize and seek to form bonds more solid than before. As far as the world was concerned, Russia was the leper no one wanted to touch. Even everyday Russians were clamoring for their once popular president to pull back and rescind the threat. I'm sorry it happened that way, but this isn't over yet. I still have a couple of things up my sleeve. Trust me. By the end of the month, Zimmer and Southgate will be out and I'll be in. Tell me what you plan to do. Dryberg told him. Bukov nodded. It sounds like you have things under control. You're goddamn right I do. Bukov stood and looked out over his fields. I think I may take a walk to think about what you've said. Do you have time to come? Dryberg looked up at his friend and shrugged. Sure, why not? As he rose to join Bukov, he went to set his coffee on the arm of the white chair. Just as the mug touched wood, his hand disappeared followed by the most blinding pain Dryberg had ever felt. He held the stump as it gushed blood, geyser-like. Pitifully, he looked to his Russian friend, who was by now down the four steps, 
standing on the brick path leading to the fence. I'm sorry, my friend, said Bukov. He turned and continued on his way, leaving Dryberg on the porch, his lifeblood splattering into the creaking wood slats. The last thing Dryberg would know was looking out to the foggy fields. The next second, his head exploded like a watermelon from the supersonic fifty-caliber round, screaming for his life. Bukov kept walking, breathing in the cool, moist air, not an ounce of remorse on his conscience. He would be granted asylum in exchange for telling the Americans everything he could about Russia. It could take years. Meanwhile, he would live a very comfortable life in the United States. Two figures emerged from the hillside, as if coalescing out of the mist. Ghosts. They took their time as they made their way down to Bukov. Cal and Daniel met him by the old watershed, bricks crumbling from neglect, icicles still clinging to its edges like sad daggers used for the last time. Daniel was carrying his Barrett sniper rifle, and Cal had the weapon's accessory bag slung over his shoulder. Both Marines were wearing jeans and black T-shirts. There hadn't been much need for camouflage. You okay? asked Cal. I'm fine, thank you, answered Bukov. Good. Daniel, you take care of the house, and I'll get the ambassador to the car. The debriefing team is waiting. Less than ten minutes later, the three men drove down the worn dirt path. The rising flames of centuries-old wood filling their rearview mirror. Epilogue Camp Spartan, Arrington, Tennessee 11.38 a.m., March 18th The smell of paperwork made Cal want to take a flamethrower to his entire desk. No matter how much he did, there always seemed to be more. His once-tidy office was covered in mounds of files and reports. It wasn't even noon, and Cal already had four paper coffee cups stacked in his trash can. It had only been a week since they'd wrapped up things with the president, but to Cal and his endless supply of admin work, it felt like a lifetime. Unfortunately, with the world back on the mend, he didn't have an excuse to avoid his office. The Russians had finally caved, and the president's bold initiative was scrapped. In exchange, the Russians and their cohorts had agreed to severe penalties, each assenting to give the United States five years without having to pay a penny of interest on their debt. Further, the guilty countries would have to pay an extra tax on top of any future investments they made with the U.S., it was a hefty price to pay, but much better than the alternative of having the world's financial markets go into a freefall. With Travis now permanently in Washington, and Zimmer and Southgate on the same page, there wasn't much Cal could do except return to the task of helping SSI's new CEO, Marge Haynes, get the company more business. 
He'd offered to be part of the team to debrief Igor Bukov, but the CIA had whisked the man away as soon as Cal and Daniel had dropped the former ambassador at the CIA safe house in Manassas. Cal huffed for the umpteenth time that day, wishing he could delegate the mundane tasks of his position to someone else. Just as he reached for another inch-thick file, Marge Haynes stepped into his office. "'And to what do I owe the pleasure of your presence, my lady?' asked Cal, happy for the distraction. "'We need to talk.' Cal searched Marge's face, trying to read her expression. Nothing. Okay, what's up? Not here. Let's go to my office. Hold on. If I'm about to get a scolding, I'd rather do it in here. Marge stared at him with those lawyer eyes, accustomed to breaking lesser men. Fine, if that's what you want. It is. Now, by the way you stormed in here, I'm assuming it's something I did, although I can't imagine what that could be. I've been analyzing how SSI is doing business, and I think we need to make a few changes. Cal flew out of his chair. And what the hell is that supposed to mean? This is my company, remember? Marge's face softened. Look. I'm just doing what should have been done a long time ago. And what would that be? Cal couldn't believe what he was hearing. He thought Marge was a friend, someone who believed in the company his father had started, that his cousin had grown, that the hard-working employees called home. Now she was looking to take apart the well-oiled machine? It was total bullshit. Cal... I agree with everything you've done over the last couple years, but it's getting to the point where we can't hide it anymore. We're getting too big. Something will leak out eventually. It almost has before. We need to make a change. Cal wanted to scream at the top of his lungs and tell Marge to go to hell. He and his men worked hard every single day to protect not only their company but their country. Why don't you just spit it out, Marge? I'm not very good with riddles. Marge nodded solemnly. I'm sorry, Cal, but I think it's time for you to leave SSI. As we close today's captivating episode on Book TV, don't forget to check out Novel Nutrition. Tailored for book lovers, our supplements are designed to complement your reading lifestyle. Use code BOOKTV for a 20% discount on your first order at novelnutrition.co. Enhance your reading experience with Novel Nutrition and don't forget that every purchase helps support an author.